Hi, I'm Ingrid Kohler. And I'm Jonathan Carwest. Welcome to LGIU Fortnightly. We're back, Ingrid. We're I'm back. back. I haven't been on the pod for a while. It's always a pleasure. Um, lots of things are back. Lots of things, like school, which is part of the reason yeah, you're back. Yeah. I, I have to say your but, son is quite, is quite funny because he's like, he wants to be in the room, but I can see him and he looks so bored. Yes. Well, that's because he's stuck with me. And on those occasions, it's because yeah, he still claims not to find a podcast about local government um, entirely fascinating. But, you know, what? I'm working on it. It will come. But, <laughs> but yeah, they're back. They're back in school. Um, with varying start times, so I spend most of my life going to and from school. But yes, for now, fingers crossed. Yeah, there, fingers crossed. I got are. the letter yesterday, the letter that every parent dreads these days. Oh, uh, confirmed cases. Confirmed cases. But hey, definitely do still send your kids to school because we have procedures that we won't tell you about um, to make sure that everything's fine. So... I, I am entirely invested in believing that everything is fine and sending them to school. Uh, it, will take a, it will take a lot. To but still, yes, schools are back. Uh, LJU's post-COVID councils are back. In a big way. Yeah, we launched this week um, our, the, next, the next pillar of our post-COVID councils work on places and communities. That's one of the things that's going to be featuring in this edition of the podcast. Um, you'll hear from Janet, Janet Sillett, and Jane Sankariah, um, of, both of LGIU. They'll tell you a little bit about that. What else have we got coming up on this edition, Ingrid? We've got a really great conversation between Jim Savage, who's the chair of, I want to say Solace. Solace, Solace Scotland. But then they say it's Solace. Sometimes so- they, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, anyway. It's confusing. Solace, let's stick. The Society for Local Authority Chief Executives, Scotland. In Scotland. And um, he's also the Chief Executive of Aberdeenshire County Council. And he's having a conversation with Pat Dowling, who's the Chief Executive of Clare County Council in Ireland. And they're talking about the changing nature of work and rural development. Um, a little bit more about that later. But anyway, really great yeah. stuff. No, it's good. It's good. Uh, people will enjoy that, I think. Um, before we crack into that, I guess a couple of, I don't want to, is housekeeping the right word? A couple of bits and pieces from us. Look, um, we want your feedback. Uh, tell us about your feedback on the pod. Give us a rating. Give us a review. That helps us to reach more people. And reaching more people is good news for us. But it's also good news for you, dear listener, because it's part of how we help tell the story of local government, tell people what a great job local government is doing, convince uh, people like my recalcitrant eight-year-old that local government is the most exciting uh, thing to be talking about. Um, so help us with that. Um, help us to help you and, and do rate us or review us. Um, and we also want to just flag up a couple of, we have mentioned these on the pod before, but a couple of exciting events that we've got coming up. Ingrid. Right. So Councillor Awards, and it's it's back bigger than ever but also slightly more remote than ever but that maybe means that more people can see the great stories of local leadership local community building that happens all across England and Scotland everywhere obviously but these are the country councillors that we're celebrating at the end of November and it's the thing that I think the good thing about doing it virtually is that it means that people can come to the to the awards ceremony who it's not dependent on being able to get yourself to London or Edinburgh. So hopefully whilst yeah in some ways it's not as good as being able to celebrate in person, in other ways it makes it more open to to, to, to more people. So there's, you know, as we're learning in this um, new world in which we operate, there are there are advantages and disadvantages to the way we have to do things now. That's going to be on the 24th of November in Scotland and the 26th of November in England. So do put those dates in your diary. I'm not going to, you know, people have heard me on this podcast before and in person and at any opportunity raving about how wonderful the Councillor Awards are, raving about how it tells these incredible stories of people uh, doing amazing things for their communities. 
raving about how it's a real antidote to the sort of a lot of the kind of negative stuff we see in the news and a lot of you know sense i think at the moment a lot of people have a lot of anxiety about how the world is going a lot of anxiety about politics this is the flip side this is the positive so you've all heard me say that before so i won't go on about that at any more length now we have had over 200 nominations in england nominations in scotland it's a record again it's a record every year it's amazing it keeps growing and if you want to nominate a councillor for that it's too late nominations closed um those nominations have closed but we'll be back again next year if there is still nominations you want to make and of course as as we said 24th of november in scotland 26th of november in england will be the virtual award ceremony do tune in for that and rest assured we will be coming back on this podcast to give you more details of that as we get closer so that's council awards ingrid we've also got uh, an event that you've been leading on that you've initiated and uh, it's very much your 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 baby um book club book club is another thing that's back yeah yeah book club's back it's not my baby i'm not even leading the next one but i'm i'm helping to organize it anyway so book club is back it's going to be on the 29th of october and we will have uh by the time this podcast goes out there will be uh sign up forms available uh on our website lju.org the next book that we're reading is municipal dreams the rise and fall of council housing i want to say john bounton john it's got that O-U-G-H thing that in English I never know how to pronounce. Um, do you know? Alton. Yes. Alton. Okay, cool. Um, so that's the book. Uh, a number of members of staff have already started reading it and say great things about it. I have started looking at the cover. I have the book. Um, I haven't read it yet. The discussion is going to be led by Andrew Walker. He's our head of research. But he's also a bit of a housing policy specialist. I thought you were going to say housing policy nerd there, and I thought that's very unfair. Oh, or, uh, no, it's, it it's wouldn't not, have been not unfair. that unfair. No, it, no, not at all unfair. Um, however, I want to stress that even though Andrew's leading this because he's got some depth of knowledge in this area, this is not a conversation for specialists. This is not a uh, a roundtable for housing policy people. This is just for people who have read the book and are interested in the subject, yeah. which is all of us. And, and, uh, right. And the book, the book is not a housing nerd book. It's 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 a really beautiful and really interesting book. Um, so yeah, totally. You do not feel you have to be immersed in in housing or planning policy to to get something out of this. Um, it's for everyone. How do so people you, find out about it, Ingrid? So you go to lgiu.org and you'll find out about it there. But if you don't want to miss events, uh, and I know you don't, um, I urge you, if you have not already registered on lgiu.org, then go there, register, set up an account. Um, whether you're a member or not, it's free to do that. And then there's a form that it'll take you to to fill in your preferences. The thing you need to do, well, you, really, you should get everything. Tick every box, <laughs> do the whole thing. But if you don't want to do that, that's cool. Make sure that you're signed up for our weekly newsletter because that is the one that has all the highlights from the past week. It has all the stuff that's, uh, that's free for, for anyone, for the whole sector. It has all of our member-exclusive stuff, um, and it has listings of events. And so if you're getting that weekly email hits about Friday lunchtime. You can sit there with your sandwich or maybe your leftovers from the night before if you're still working at home. And you can uh, read about all the stuff that you've missed in the week and all the things that you can sign up to um, that you can participate in. Yeah. So go to our website. And, uh, and look, moving on to some of the, the content for this week, I, you know, it's really, I mean, I know I would say this, but it's really worth going to the website and looking at, at that because we've got some amazing content coming out. So this week, we launched the second pillar in our post-COVID councils work, uh, looking at place and community. And there is, yeah, and I would say this because you know, I'm chief executive of LGIU. On the other hand, I didn't write any of it. There is amazing material um, on there. There's some really, really good briefings, some really good long reads, yeah, a real wealth of stuff. We've been looking at, you know, one of the things we've been talking about with our members over, over the, the last months is how 
the pandemic is, is forcing us to rethink what local government is, what local government does. Yeah, we talked about this under the frame of post-COVID councils. Maybe it's not the right word because I guess it's becoming clear to us that post-COVID is a long way off. This is just kind of, we're in the next phase of the pandemic. But, but nevertheless, you know, we know that local government is changing and adapting. We know that a lot of that is about some structural issues that were present pre-pandemic and that have been highlighted uh, and amplified uh, by the pandemic. So we've been looking at, or we are going to be looking at, the location of, of power, you know, how this, what we learn about power and decision-making, we're, we're thinking about sustainable futures, how we build back sustainably, and we already launched a bunch of work on that. Uh, we're thinking about what we have learned about place and community and how we, as local government, manage and curate those things. That's the work we've launched this week. And then we're also going to be picking up on some of the, the unfinished business around social care and, and local government finance. We'll be thinking about you know, how all this plays out in a world in which we have changing levels of trust in institutions and a sort of tension between networks and institutions. And we'll be thinking about how councils as organisations and as employers need to, be, need to change. So a whole programme of work over six months. This week, uh, we launched the place and community element of that. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit from, from, from Jane and Janet, uh, who have been leading this work. So I, so I won't anticipate that. Um, just to say that, you know, we have seen through this pandemic you know, that it has highlighted some of the existing issues around sort of inequalities uh, of outcome for different communities. And that's been particularly true in the pandemic. So we have a huge amount of material that we've been publishing this week around that. And we had a launch event on Tuesday uh, where we heard from Jane and from Janet and from Tom, Tom Lloyd Goodwin from Claire's and from Pippa Coots from the Carnegie UK Trust really focusing in on this issue of how the pandemic has affected different communities uh, differently and and what wh how as local government we can sort of use that spotlight to sort of build back better so um let's hear from jane and janet ingrid we we've got jane and janet coming up people if people want to see the rest of the conversation that's on the website it will be on the website by the time this comes out yes yeah, it will. But so it, it's worth a look because there were some slides and things like that so we're going to share that uh on the website it's also worth noting there was a uh, i think a very rich conversation after the speakers you won't hear that we keep that on the qt on the down low um well yeah because we tell you know that we do these events under chatham house rules so for, for participants we will do a write-up of it, but for participants, we, we, we don't attribute comments um, so that people can be open and honest. So, yeah, on the website, you'll see, the, you'll see the speakers. If you want to hear the rich conversation afterwards, I'm afraid you're going to have to come to one of these. Um, I'm not afraid. I would like you to come to one of these, <laughs> um, which there will be plenty of opportunity to do because we've got you know, Andrew's uh, launching work on, on the location of power kind of early October, you're going to be doing work on, on sort of trust, Ingrid, uh, early-ish, early, mid-November. Mid-November, mid yeah. Yeah. Well, again, we'll tell people more about those as they come out. But for now, place and community, let's hear from Janet and from Jane. I just wanted to say a few words really about the overall theme of um, place and community. It's clearly a very wide theme, which is why we've tried to focus it down today on engagement. But I guess you could break that down into three things really, evidence and what it tells us. And then we've looked a lot about the impact on specific groups, on individuals and communities and places. And clearly, as Jonathan said, and we all know the differential impact on, on all those. Um, and then the third element in, in the theme is really the most difficult one, obviously, for all of us is how do we progress? How do we learn and implement stuff from that learning? What, how do we move forward? Just saying a little bit about the evidence, like the science, it's sometimes disputed. It's um, sometimes hard to interpret. It's very fast moving. 
and I think Jay may be saying a little bit about um, it's not self-evident always evidence in terms of its quality, um, where it's come from, what context it's coming from. However, however disputed, and sometimes this is, there are certain realities that we all know have been magnified, thrown up and exposed by COVID. And some of them are really not very comfortable, I think, for, for many of us to, to confront. So we have looked particularly at the impact, for example, on, on bone communities, and Jane's going to say a little bit about that, but also clearly on disadvantaged places, on people who are already at a, you know, poor or whatever, discriminated against. None of that's surprising. I mean, we all know, we all would know that that was going to be the case. I think what is, what was quite surprising quite quickly was, was the extent of the differential impacts on uh, different people. But mostly it wasn't surprising. We also know that each place is different, that within places even, uh, there are differences in terms of that impact. And that there are very um, different and very complex factors that are inter interrelating. So how do, how do we interpret those? How, how do we make sense of those? And how do we try to make sense of them in terms of how we project, project forwards? We also know, and I think this is going back to the differential impact, that where we had a situation that was already difficult and bad, that the, those situations have worsened and that they will get worse. Um, we've looked particularly at health inequalities, um, where there is probably almost an immediate impact, but certainly down the line, there are going to be um, greater impacts. There was a, a question around how do we ensure genuine engagement in terms of recovery plans? And it's so easy to say, you know, how do we do that? How do we consult? How do we get people to participate? And we all know, and I know from personal experience, how incredibly difficult it is. It's so easy to say and very, very hard to deliver. And it's not getting, it's not going to get any easier because of some of the issues that have arisen over the last few months. I think the two other, and obviously related, is, is what is the role of councils in all this? Um, are councils meant to be conveners? Are they bringing people together? Is that their main role? Are they promoters? Are they visionaries? Are they decision makers? Clearly councils are decision makers or we wouldn't have them. And also I think within that particularly, um, which we haven't, I think, drawn out so much in, in the content. And if you've looked at our new pack page, there's a lot of content there, but the role of counsellors, and it seems to me for this particular issue around engagement and participation, the role of counsellors is absolutely critical. But this isn't the end of this conversation. Um, Post-COVID councils will go on. We're still getting contributions in for place and community. And really we want to hear more of what you've got to say so we can add to what to what we've already got. Yeah, I mean, I think Janet's covered very succinctly the main points of what we're discussing. I just wanted to maybe add, maybe urge people to read a contribution that we've published today from a group called Black, uh, an organisation called Black Thrive, which talks particularly about the challenges of um, collecting and responding to knowledge and information from the perspective of a community and not falling back as I think can happen on sort of assumptions and perceived stereotypes with, when looking at data and when using that to kind of build or develop services. And the other caveat I would add that is, you know, not all communities that should go out saying are the same. So when you engagement with one say minority community I think can sometimes stand in for engagement across a lot of communities and that that can't happen you know obviously engagement with a, a black british community is not the same thing and does not not yield the same information as engagement with an asian community or a, 
uh, a community of Syrian refugees. So read the Black Drive article, it's very good. Thank you. Yeah, I think Jenna and Jane both really eloquently talk about some of the aspects of this work, um, but there's even more to this pillar than what they've described, the already rich amount of content that they've described. Um, I think there's some, there's a couple of really amazing long reads that are out there that are really, really worth looking at. Yeah. Um, there, there's, there's one on global local, one of my favorite topics, how, how, how global localism is an important dimension of, of local government post-pandemic. Um, there's one on, on economic statistics and community. Uh, there's one on identity and regeneration and a sense of you know, an amazing bunch of stuff in that. Yeah, and so some of it is long, thoughtful pieces, like the global local, like identities and communities. And some of it is like broken down into like more useful chunks, like say, understanding the COVID statistics, understanding what that means about your community, both in terms of impact, but also in terms of how we build back even better. Exactly. So a huge amount there that people can, can get stuck into. So, so please do loads to read, loads to learn from and lots more to come. It's only the beginning. Of, of the material that we're publishing around place and community and around the other the other pillars that are that are still to come so so do have a look at that right so if you didn't already know if we hadn't told you already which i'm sure we have um lgiu operates in england and scotland and ireland and now australia and uh, Wales, where are you? I love going to Wales. Give me any excuse to get there, please. Um, but I, I think we may have mentioned this the <laughs> once or twice. Once um, or twice. Yeah, we're global. <laughs> Sorry. But right now we're focusing on some conversations between Scotland and Ireland. They have they operate in very very different legal systems. Uh, in many ways, um, different structures, local government structures, but facing a lot of really common issues. And Andy Johnston, who uh, is one of our LGIU team members, has been facilitating conversations between... Hey, is this Andy's, Andy's debut on the podcast? I think it is. Um, no, uh, back in the very, very early days, I interviewed him about You're flooding. Right. Right? right so listeners here's something that you need to know about andy he's like a super funny guy he's really funny really um engaging um and he's still engaging on the podcast but he's never funny and it's just such a shame um because he's oh sorry andy but yeah we're gonna i'm gonna my goal is to get him on the podcast at some point and let people see uh just like what a funny guy he is until then, <laughs> you've got him being serious and insightful as he facilitates a conversation. I mean, that is kind of the bit we pay him for, to be well, fair. I know, it's but serious he's, and insightful. Anyway. But he, but he's also really funny. So, um, <laughs> in, so in, look, a in a clever way, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, this is a conversation between Jim Savage, who's, as we said earlier, Chair of Solace Scotland, Chief Exec of Aberdeenshire County Council, and Pat Dowling, uh, Chief Executive of County Clare, with Andy. Uh, sound quality is not as brilliant on this as we aspire to, so we'll, we'll fix that going forwards. But this is part of a series of facilitated conversations between Scottish and Irish Chief Execs. Um, we're going to have more of them, and we're going to podcast more of them. But if you'd like to take part, who do they get in touch with, Ingrid? Well, just, just write to us at info at lgiu.org and it'll go to the right person yeah so you know this is part of what we want to do with with the international dimension to to our work which we may have mentioned before um is precisely to 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 facilitate these sorts of conversations between leaders in local government in different place places working under different systems but who have who share kind of common problems and trying to sort of spark interesting kind of ideas and reflections and learning between them. So, yeah, this is the beginning of what we hope will be a really sort of productive series of, uh, of events, starting with Scotland and Ireland, uh, but in time expanding to include Australia, uh, England, and other places where we work. So uh, let's hear from, from Andy and Jim and Pat.
The LGIU has members in Ireland and Scotland. We have a, a programme of bringing together the leading thinkers in local government from those countries. And I'm very pleased to say that in the first of those events, we've got Pat Dowling, Chief Executive of Clare County Council, and Jim Savage, Chief Executive of Aberdeenshire Council and Chair of Solace Scotland. We started the discussion by talking about towns policy. This is something which is in the Irish programme for government, but it's about learning from Scotland. So we started off by asking Jim Savage about policy and practice in Aberdeenshire. We have a town centre first policy in place in all of our planning activity and all of our policy and decision making as well. And so we're very clear where we can do that any uh, fabric or aspect of decision has the town right at the heart of it. And a very small final example. Um, we have and are very involved in a big piece of work in terms of the refresh of our uh, council estate in terms of our office facilities and buildings. Uh, and uh, we are very focused in terms of making sure that those investments are in town centres and not in out of town situations. So anything that we can do from a public realm point of view, we will do to make sure that that investment goes into having a positive impact in terms of the, the local economy in, in terms of towns in that respect. So really it's just embedded within the sort of fabric in terms of how we work and how we operate and I would say that's the same across many parts of the country as well a very good solid traditional uh, with no apologies focus in terms of the importance of towns in the place in terms of our communities and leveraging investment into those from a UK and from a Scottish point of view. Well I, I wondered if you had any comments on um, Jim's rural development strategy within within Aberdeenshire um, Ideas like business improvement districts and things like that, are there equivalents in Clare? No, not really. I mean, the, the, bid, the bid system in Ireland is somewhat different. And in listening to Jim, uh, it's interesting. And, and if, if I misunderstood it, he can let me know. But it's very much around the focus on the growth of the towns and how there's a spin-off benefit into the peripheral areas of those towns. And of course, Jim, just the scale of your your county is, is different uh, to County Clare. Uh, I mean, basically, Clare has two towns. The capital town of Ennis, which has a population of only in excess of 20,000. And then Shannon, which is the first man-made town in Ireland, because in the context of Shannon Airport, has a population of 10,000 people. Beyond that, the settlements are quite small, scattered around. And while one we need as part of our rural development strategy, obviously to build those urban settlements and the spin-off benefits, uh, there are many people commuting from all parts of West Clare and East Clare into Limerick City, which is the capital of the Midwest, which is a city of 100,000 people. So that is acting as a magnet, taking people from all the neighbouring counties uh, to work there. Now, or should I say, that's the way it used to be. Um, I think, and I hope, that the way the world is going now and the economy can, is going to change, maybe, you know, that while these towns are important as drivers for economic development, that small, smaller settlements of villages and smaller communities can also grow and develop as well. Because while in, in my context in West Clare, we have towns of, of, of Kilrush and in Estimon, you know, centres of 3,000 people only, um, you do need the rural peripheral areas, the rural hinterlands to feed those towns, uh, whether it's from the point of view of economic activity or schools or police stations or whatever the case may be. So I think more and more the focus I'm, I'm adopting in Clare is how do we get people back living in rural isolated communities? Isolated being maybe the wrong term. How do we get them back into rural communities so that they drive to the local town to work? They don't drive to Limerick to work or Galway uh, or whatever the case may be so that we create more uh, mini economies. Uh, why? Because it's quality living, it's healthy living, uh, and I think more and more that's something now we should all exploit in the Western Isles. Um, 
um, of Scotland, England, Wales, and Ireland that may be, you know, growing nodes all around these rural layers, self-sustaining nodes uh, connected to villages, connected to towns. Part of our rural development strategy is called towns working together and parishes partnering each other. So we, we've looked geographically at County Clare around pulling towns together and creating economic sustainable entities and those rights and how they feel in. So it's it's a little more rural focused maybe, Jim, than your, your situation. And you can see why, because our population is very small. And what I want to stop is this constant drawing away in a magnetic effect people from the rural areas every day into two or three large towns or into neighbouring cities in different counties. Uh, that worked for decades. I think with the new realities we're dealing with, we need to see about creating investment back into these areas. And I don't know if people are as concerned anymore about having high-flying jobs in high-rise office blocks in big urban conurbations. I think there's 20 30% that will work differently into the future. And there lies in, from my point of view, maybe the, some of the opportunities. That's very interesting, Pat. Jim, does that reflect what you see as the, as the potential future for development in Aberdeenshire? It, it does, absolutely. I, think I would really concur with what uh, Pat has just said, you know, just to expand it on. I think the very recent scenario of COVID-19 is going to reinforce that. We've already seen, you know, even across my organisation, many staff in a positive way of saying, well, if I can work at home more now, I don't need to have that hour or commute all the time. So I can stay and work in a more local office. I can work at home. I can come into another office if I need to more flexibly. And that is uh, reinforcing the uh, uh, strength and resilience of local communities, less travel, less carbon impact, uh, a better work-life balance and greater productivity. So if I, if I can save someone an hour a day and they can have half of it and I can have half of it in terms of work, then that's great. Uh, it's a win-win all around. And I'm seeing that across many different sector civil service we're seeing that now and i think as pat said people may want the high-flying jobs but they don't want to live in a high-rise building they don't want to pay high rents they want to live and have a better quality of life with some air and some space around them i think kobe just reinforced that so I think there's a perversity of, of a proposition here. One is about like we're really quite a lovely rural place, but please can we have some more people here at the same time as well? It's striking the right balance. So we've got population growth uh, forecast here, uh, and some of that is about an older demographic, which is very typical. Um, but I think it's about just continuing to get the right balance and retention of young people here, attraction of some mid-professionals, and also the sustainment of families with a sort of caring for older relatives as well, that the right proportion is important. I think as Pat's saying, two things I draw out. I think the sustained in, uh, investment in terms of traditional infrastructure, in terms of transport, in terms of rail, in terms of road is key. Um, I think the continued investment in terms of broadband and continuing to make that viable for us is really important. And then secondly, probably a greater flexibility we're showing from a planning point of view through our, our latest local development plan, where we are starting to favour the allocation of a larger number of smaller sites for house building as opposed to more industrial approach we're taking before we think is going to sustain smaller rural communities as well and within that the investment in terms of some of those traditional industries like agriculture and fishing has been very important as well so really being in touch with what the, the place is about and I think, I think what comes through for me from Pat, which I really get and I agree with, is about being really pragmatic about what you therefore do as a council. It's not about having lots of high-flying policies and plans. It's about having our sleeves rolled up and getting on with it and putting our money investment in stuff happening in real terms and how we use our um, spend in the supply chain and our deployment of our workforce to stimulate that as well. So different scale, clearly. Um, but as I said at the start, I, I don't give too much concern about where my staff stay or where they work. I just want the job done. And if that allows them to live in a more flexible uh, uh, arrangement and to reinforce the resilience of rural communities, then that's great. We're playing our part in that. And I think my, my views will be echoed across the, with many other colleagues as well. It, well, thank you. It's, it's an interesting point. Pat, in, in terms of uh, Claire, is the population forecast to grow within the county? 
Yeah, that's that's part of the difficulty. Uh, um, uh, Claire, uh, under current government thinking, under what's called a national planning framework, uh, they have set out population projections, but they're very much focusing that population growth in metropolitan areas. So outside of, of, of Dublin. And one of those, it's called uh, metropolitan area plans are coming up with. And one of those is the Limerick Shannon. Now, we've got Shannon included in it, in Clare, the Limerick Shannon metropolitan plan, that the focus of population growth would be on that basis. It leaves very little extra for the rural areas beyond that. So, the, the, and I say current uh, in the sense of the last government, but it's part of the national planning framework. That's the thinking at the moment, that the growth from Limerick, so, you know, you grow the city area and it all will benefit as a result. That, that thinking is fine, and it leaves very little propensity for Clare, particularly the rural areas, to have any significant growth beyond that. It's almost negligible. Um, and even the growth of the mass areas in itself is questionable. So that may change. I think patterns of living and patterns of working. So I think we need to re-question and re-evaluate all that thinking that was done by these planners. I'm nothing against planners. They're very important people. But, um, you know, they plan on the basis of what, what's in front of them. I think we don't know what lies ahead of us. I think as leaders in local government, Jim and I and others need to be able to look around corners here to a certain extent and say, you know, it, it, it's a new type of society we're building from now on. If you look at our government policy going forward, it talks about 20% of people in the public service remote working from next year onwards. That thinking was unheard of. It's like Jim is saying he does it himself. Uh, that was unheard of a few weeks, a few months ago. So that, to me, I think, questions all our assumptions around planning. Uh, and I have to do the very same, as Jim mentioned there, to do with the county development plan and around house building and all that. Uh, I think our, our, our policies and schemes around forcing people to move into local towns and villages to build their homes, we have to reevaluate that ourselves now in County Clare. Uh, we're reviewing our counter development plan commencing the end of this year. I think it'll be a very different plan than the traditional ones from a point of view of settlements, population, location, all of that. So on a population bit, uh, folks, I mean, Clare is seen as a rural county. Clare is seen as dependent on the local city in the region, which is Limerick. That's fine and well, but I want Clare to maybe and try and govern its own destiny as much as possible and create new interesting projects around remote working that all of a sudden we can book the trend and tell all these planners that we can attract more people into our county than they think want to come here or will come here. Now, it's a delicate balance, but I have a clear ambition to, to show the planners that what you projected in population growth in the next 20 years in Clare, we'll double that. And we double it because we have a different type of offering than the traditional, have you a railway line, have you digital broadband, have you an airport, have you traditional infrastructure that requires people to live together? I think we've to question all of that stuff. Right. Thank you, Pat. That, that, that's really interesting. And, and Jim, I, I don't know if you're aware, but um, the, the Irish have a, a national planning framework, which is actually quite detailed. In, in its anticipation for population growth and, and where it expects it to be. I think you have a little bit more freedom uh, in Aberdeenshire locally, um, is the case. Um, but do you think that makes a significant difference to in terms of the strategy that you put together in the end? 
Um, we, we've just been through a national planning review, which has changed some of that balance. And so we, and I think that was a sort of quite an arm wrestle as ever in terms of getting the balance. Uh, so we do have some greater national prescription now in terms of a sort of house building, a sort of build out rates, uh, which is allocated out where it used to be local determination. But we still do have a lot more discretion with local development plans and also the ability to plan on a regional basis as well. Um, so I, I think it's an interesting dynamic back and forth as ever i think as pat's touching on is how can without being too simplistic how do we have the same common data set with between central local government and how can we have a shared ambition you know so so that we don't end up um i don't know trading blows through policy or through sort of the legislation but just say what are we trying to achieve here in some shape or form and and for us uh, i think in scotland city region deals have been a good example of that where they have found a balance of urban and rural investments and they have allowed a spread of, of funding so for example in moray one of my neighboring authorities they've had a deal for them which has enabled some significant growth of investment coming in in terms of military utilization of some of their old sites which are going to stimulate population growth a greater quality of jobs coming in etc um uh, and so it's not just the glasgow's and the edinburgh's that get that it is about the, the, the rest of the country that is getting it also in that way so i think we've got the same tension i i hats off to pat and i i do and i think it's the point he's making which is one of having some ambition not being constrained and restrained by a uh, sort of a uh, perception in terms of what ought to happen and just say no no no, here's actually what we think we can achieve and push it and uh, uh, i would uh, be interested just to get feel in terms of the i guess the collaborative approach between central and local government that exists uh, sort of a, with pattern colleagues about how accessible that is it certainly feels that we um even through the lens of covid19 have made some positive progress in terms of understanding each other's worlds between central and local and to find a better way to get to that common and shared ambition as well. Uh, we are very much at the whim of resources that we, we might be able to get. So uh, in, in the context of rural development, um, up until the recent formation of the new government in Ireland, there was a dedicated senior minister for rural development. That has been now in the new government somewhat diluted. Um, it's there is still a senior minister, but it has been added in with social protection. So the social welfare bit, which is very topical, uh, especially with all the the COVID payments being made to workers and all of that, has been added to rural development. Some view it as a dilution of 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 uh, role. Yes, perhaps in a way. Uh, but it's still, at least we still have a senior minister with responsibility for rural development, but it, it's a step backwards in my view. In the context of the relationship, um, uh, Jim, and you were talking about it there, uh, I mean, the relationship between central and local government is very strong. Um, the only difficulty is they keep trying to reform local governments, and the new government that have come in have a whole chapter, and they're going to reform us all again. They keep doing it. Um, and this time it's quite drastic. Uh, they are proceeding with the appointment of directly elected mayors with executive powers. Um, and it commences in Limerick in 2021, next year, with a view that we will roll out across the country, including uh, the Banner County. Sorry, we're called the Banner County Gym, so that, that's just a, um, a term we use for the Banner County would be kicking in in 2024, and therefore I would be the last of my species. We're about to become extinct uh, uh, in the context of current government thinking. So the relationship, that, step, that aside, that's the politics of it. Uh, that aside, uh, I mean, significant funds have been made available in the last number of years for a lot of the efforts we're trying to make, particularly building our tourism infrastructure and our tourism product. So we have received enabling funding, not huge, but in the context of West Clare, uh, in the last year and a half, we've got up to 15 million euro for a range of initiatives to do with Loophead Lighthouse, Vandalar Gardens, uh, Holy Island. We bought an island to develop it. It's an old traditional um, religious uh, settlement. So we're developing a lot of product like that. So, you know, more funding has been made available for uh, stuff in, 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 in the rural counties of Ireland 
but it's still very much central government control. And every time you want to build a house or fix a bridge or do whatever, you got to make your application. It goes to central government and they reevaluate it all over again. And finally, at some stage into the future, funding is made available. So uh, very little discretion locally. And, and Jim, how would you describe the situation in Scotland? Similar but different, if I can be simplistic about it. I, I sit with a wry smile listening to Pat there, and it's the pesky politics getting in the way at times as ever. Uh, I think it's interesting looking um, uh, south of the border for us, at the uh, sort of uh, introduction of mayoral systems across England and the consolidation of power there. Uh, and in some ways, with, without being uh, simplistic about it, you can move the deck chairs around a place in terms of governance, but the place is still the same. And the needs and the aspirations and ambitions of the area are still the same as well. And so we sometimes have to navigate all these changes and still get on with it and keep our focus in terms of what's important. So... I mean, we've certainly had uh, what was, in, uh, uh, I think, intended to be a local government review that then changed to a local governance review uh, within the current uh, national administration. And uh, we've had over the last few years lots of debates about who should be responsible for education. We've had very positive reforms legislatively in terms of the change in terms of health and care. So it's now integrated. So constant changes in terms of how things are. Um, and amidst all of that, the place in our communities and business is still there. They're still the same. So whilst we sometimes indulge in moving the deck chairs, we've still got a job to do. Uh, and I think that's what strikes me is about how do we just get past all that stuff and still safe impact, for example, being declared. This is what we need to do and how do we get on with it. Same for me. What's my economic strategy for rural Aberdeenshire, for the heart of rural Deeside? How am I going to sustain and maintain sort of the right number of visitors and encourage investment into the, the communities, into the, the basics and fundamentals of, you know, which public toilets do I open up for visitors coming in post-COVID-19 lockdown? You know, it's that real practical ground stuff that's the most important stuff. And, and you know, I, I, without being apologetic, that's the discussion I keep on having with civil servants to keep everyone grounded in terms of the reality on the ground in that respect as well so yeah keep on moving the deck chairs around us we've still got a job to do uh, and i i uh, pat i think that you are just going to become phoenix like in terms of coming out from the uh, the, the changes that will happen and still be there mate yeah i spoke um, jim i hear what you're saying um and i smile as well but there is from from my experience and uh, I'm only 20 years in local government. I mean, I'm relatively still new in the context of a lot of my colleagues. But the one thing I've learned clearly is that uh, uh, the shift that's being proposed by government in Ireland uh, does have significant dangers uh, inherent in it because we, should, we can never lose. I mean, what you and I do, Jim, we, we think big. It's about the big strategic, we think the long term. To me, the long term is how, whatever I do now, how, how will it make clear in 20 years' time? Uh, it, the shift of power away from that uh, will bring, it will be about the deck chairs. Uh, and that all it'll be about, moving them around. And it'll be around the small, more petty items of business and not the big stuff that solves the economic and social challenges our counties face. There are inherent dangers in that. And from the Irish local government system, and I know there are people observing this this morning that know more about it than I do, but, you know, from my concern would be local government in Ireland could become all about the trivial matters, depending on who the mayor is at the time, taking care of their own area. Uh, it won't be about the big strategic life-changing uh, strategies that we pursue. That's what our job is, is, is to make the big things happen. The small things will often take care of themselves. So it's a shift of, of power and, and, and a shift of focus that could be, uh, you know, could be retrograde for our counties if we don't try and manage it very carefully. So while we still have to be positive going forward, look, it'll be fine. We'll still be in there in the mix. But if you have a, an executive mayor coming to every Monday morning telling you what to do and how to spend the money, that is, is more difficult, I think. 
I found that really fascinating because yeah. they're touching yeah. on a lot of the issues that we're looking at as well, like location of power, the future of work, the future of rural development. Um, and it's great to hear people who are in these different institutions just really reflecting on their own experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, many, so many of the issues the same, as you said, you know, how the, and the intersection of issues, right? So we're thinking about the location of, you know, we're thinking about how work is changing. Well, how does that affect how, how we plan places? How does, that, how, does that, how does that intersect with the kind of institutional changes around you know, elected mayors in the Irish case or the governance review in Scotland? You know, really fascinating. And the bit I scribbled, the quote I wrote down as he went through was um, when, uh, when Jim said, you can move the deck chairs around in terms of governance, but the place remains the same. And I just thought, yeah, that's 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 something we could bear in mind um, in England right now with uh, some of the discussions around sort of devolution and, and, and reorganisation. It's just worth bearing in mind those sort of issues and places a constant through that. And um, if you're going to rearrange those deck chairs, why don't you talk to the places that affects? That could be a plan. That's a radical idea, Ingrid. That would never work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quite. Um, so look, uh, I think, you know, those issues, just touching on those issues a bit around deck chair rearrangement, local government reorganisation, questions around where decisions are best made for places and how that feeds in, you know, how that relates to a sort of broader sense of place shaping and how it feeds into decisions about governance and structure. We will return to those to those issues. Um, as we said, uh, the next pillar we'll be launching will be precisely looking at some of that. That argument is going to heat up, uh, particularly in the English context, as we get, as the, when the white paper, if and when the white paper comes out beginning of October. So plenty more to say about that in the future, I think. Absolutely. But that's it from us this week. Um, as I think we've uh, foreshadowed heavily, we have much more exciting stuff planned for the podcast and for uh, the whole LGIU program of content. Um, but we'd love to hear from you, um, both in terms of feedback on what we've been doing, but also about coming on the podcast, uh, having those conversations. Um, have you done some amazing community outreach? How are you working with residents to build back better? Let us know. Drop us a line. Sure. We always want to hear from people and, you know, I'm not going to give anything away, but you've got some amazing, you've already recorded some amazing interviews in the pipe for the podcast coming up, but we're always keen to add to that. So, you know, if you, if you, if you have a story you'd like, you'd like, you'd like to tell us, or if, if you have something you think you want us to discuss, then, then do let us know. Also give us a review. Also make sure you're registered at lju.org because that's how you will get access to uh, all of this great content um, all of it if you're a member some of it if you're not a member it's also how you can find out how to become a member it's really important that the people register uh, on the website to get the full lju experience but apart from that i think it's just thanks for listening and goodbye bye